0: This is Bloomberg Business Week, insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine, plus global business, finance and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Everyone. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. This week, we talked a lot about the world
2: post-pandemic. It's all part of the how-to issue of the magazine. Everything from how to be a better tipper and land a mission on Mars to creating an innovative culture and making a great tequila. You can read more about all of that in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week.
1: I've been thinking about how to land a mission on Mars. I wanted to know how yeah, to do that. You get practicing. <laughs> you can also hear some of the highlights from our live virtual event this week called the Bloomberg Business Week that complemented the issue, including
2: the turnaround at WeWork with Executive Chairman Marcelo Cloré. Also, Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic on the U.S. Central Bank kind of, maybe, <laughs> sort of thinking about
1: a policy shift.
2: He also talked about Bitcoin.
1: He did, as did Kathy Wood, an in-depth conversation with the ARK Invest founder, CEO, CIO in the midst of a
2: wild week for cryptocurrency. We'll also hear from Brian Brooks, the CEO of Binance. It's the largest cryptocurrency exchange in the world. That company also in the news as of late. And then later
1: on, Dallas Mavericks CEO Cynthia Marshall and singer-songwriter Nick Jonas, who's working on a new tequila venture with John Varvatos. Yeah, that's a fun one. Yes, it was.
2: Let's get things started this hour with more on the how-to issue from the features editor behind it all, Brett Began, who joined us along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber.
3: It is a 40-page uh, takeover of the of, of the, the future well, we call it. Um, Brett is the mastermind of the issue. Um, and, and Brett, just talk to me about how you approach what a good how to story is.
4: I think you think about the issue as a whole. So while we are going to want to hit a lot of the topics that we're hitting week in and week out, um, like how to make good investments and things like that. Um, you have to also sort of, uh, think a little bit more broadly. So you you might get a pitch on something that for a regular issue might not make, too much sense, like let's say had a shop for a classic car outside of their pursuit section, but suddenly within um, the how-to issue, it starts to make total sense because it's great for the mix. You really want people to come uh, to the issue and really get that sense of serendipity, that they're stumbling upon something that they didn't think would be that interesting to them, and it turns out to be pretty fascinating. So,
1: you're telling me in normal times to compile a post pandemic karaoke playlist that Joel wouldn't be like, yeah, yeah, okay, cover story. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I mean, I'm all, if Joel wants to put that on the cover, I'm, I'm all for a karaoke takeover issue. Totally. Um, but yeah, but you're right, Carol. I mean, that's, that's one where. You know, we looked at, okay, um, how will you know if the pandemic is over for you, right? And for Sam Robard, it was, hey, when I can do karaoke. So we figured why not put together the ideal post-pandemic karaoke playlist.
3: I'm going to say n- nice to know, not not uh, need to know <laughs> there. But, <laughs> exactly. but as part of a mix, it makes a lot of sense. Tim, what was something that uh, jumped out to you when you saw this? all the stories for me it was it had to do with the,
2: the uh, vaccinations and really the idea of what works when it comes to messaging for vaccinations Brett because it really surprised me and, and you guys spoke to an expert about messaging and, and what did she tell you
4: it was pretty surprising to me too it it turned out that you know basically all of the more subtle approaches and approaches that um, appealed more to emotion um, didn't work. Uh, people just wanted unbridled enthusiasm and the ad that was most impactful was basically getting a bunch of cheerleaders to just do a, a, a number of like give me a v, give me an A, give me a c c i and e so um I was a bit surprised by that. I thought there'd be more nuance right. to it but it, this I is as opposed so to
2: <laughs> showing images from a hospital or, or showing right. what a, a lot of us have been familiar with over the last 14 months, yeah. right?
4: That's right. That's
2: right. Yeah, it was just give me unbridled enthusiasm,
4: yeah. make me feel happy and then I'll be more likely to get vaccinated.
3: Unbridled happiness and, and, th- and optimism, you know, I, the world just needs a little bit more of that. Um, so, so, Brett, you know, the 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 thing that I think is there's a craft to how we approach these stories and some of them are actually quite short. But in general, one of the things that we're trying to give people is something actionable. Um, and i'm I'm wondering, having spent now, you know, kind of like weeks <laughs> working on these, talk to me about some of the most actionable pieces of advice that that you liked.
4: We did these all in the as told to style, as you know, where basically we interviewed an expert and let that expert just sort of talk to us. So, you know, I mean, I actually found that one about how to meet deadlines uh, very uh, <laughs> like a great pressure on, well, oh, yeah, that is a good way to do it. You know, we're basically our our expert said, you know, this is so simple, but you really need to start at the end and then work your way back. It's so often that we get we get caught up in the task at hand and we forget to actually work backwards. So, you know, I I thought that that was.
3: Pretty. Uh, I thought that was pretty helpful. So I'm. I'm sad that Brett didn't mention my own. Uh, I was waiting for that Joel, because you right? had a really so good I'm one. Yeah, that I'm going to copy. I
4: was waiting
3: for you to do it. Oh well. Okay. I was. I was waiting for you to tell <laughs> me. That's so, why you asked me my favorite too. You wanted me to just say no, it was whatever Joel. Saying, it about. was really good.
2: Tim, our favorite was. Oh, Joel's <laughs> tipping. Joel, oh, exactly. tell me all about tipping. Oh, so and how you this doing?
3: is actually um, uh, from my younger days when you know it, it seems so long ago now. When when you used to go to bars and like interact with people, but. What's that? But um, a a friend of a friend had gave me this great tip once, which is before you go out um, on your for your weekend, you know, on Friday, go to the bank and basically buy as many two dollar bills from the bank as you can. Right. Get your deposit and you're going to find that um, the quantity of two dollar bills like your grandma bought them for your birthday cards long ago. There's not that many in (laughs) circulation. Um, So you basically take whatever the bank gives you. And um, automatically, when you start tipping a bartender, you are tipping twice as much as the person next to you who's only tipping with a buck. So you are uh, you are gold to bartenders with $2 bills.
2: <laughs> that was the features editor for the magazine, Brett Began, and our Joel Weber with an overview of the how-to issue.
1: Coming up, SoftBank's Marcelo Claure says, WeWork is well-positioned for post-pandemic life in more ways than one. A look at the future of office space
2: and rental payments. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Tech and transformation, it is one of the verticals of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. And at the Business Week live virtual event this week, we heard from a voice that knows a lot about that. We're talking about Marcelo Cloré, executive chairman at WeWork. He's also CEO of SoftBank Group International
2: and COO SoftBank Group. WeWork has come quite a way since its failed attempt at an IPO back in 2019. And Claray tells Bloomberg's Ed Hammond that the company is uniquely positioned to enjoy a renaissance even as the commercial real estate market struggles to find its footing coming off of COVID.
5: I think this is WeWork's time because the value proposition of WeWork has always been flexibility. And what the world is looking now is for a flexible workspace. There are so many different ways in which people are going to work. But what we're hearing from people is, first of all, employees want to go back to the office, right? Nine out of 10 employees say, I want to go back to the office. They don't want to go back the same way. They don't want to go back to one headquarters and be there nine to five. Some say we want to be there three days a week. Some say they want to be two days a week. Some say four days a week. Some say, I don't want to drive to a headquarters. I want to work close to home. So there's going to be so many different business models. But what I do know is that companies are not looking forward to going back to the traditional way of signing a 20 year lease and setting up these non-flexible headquarters. That's dead. The office is very different today. You know, the biggest or most of our larger customers are the world's most valuable companies who basically are sending us their employees because they don't know, you know, how many days they're gonna be working because they don't know where their business is gonna grow. And when you're sitting in the only company in the world that has over a thousand buildings in pretty much most important cities around the world, The demand for WeWork space today is higher than it was prior to the pandemic. So what the pandemic allowed, WeWork allowed to reinvent itself. It allowed to learn how to operate on a most uh, cost flexible basis. And now you have a WeWork that, like I said before, you know, WeWork should be a profitable company by the end of this year or by the beginning of next year is latest. And demand for this type of flexible office space is higher than ever. And I think the world is going to redefine in terms of where flexibility becomes the most important part that a company can offer its employees.
6: I've got to go there with the crypto question. Obviously, WeWork last month announced that it would be accepting payment in the form of cryptocurrencies known to be Bitcoin. It also said it would hold some on its balance sheet. We saw Elon Musk come out and say Tesla would no longer be taking Bitcoin over concerns about the impact it has on the environment. Obviously, the environmental impact of mining Bitcoin has, has gone up significantly over the past few months. Is that the right move? Is that something we're likely to see WeWork follow? Or is that just a sort of a reaction to. Uh, to a short-term trend?
5: No, I mean, the reason why we decided to accept cryptocurrencies was because our customers were asking for it. We you know one of the things that we do with Sandeep is we listen to our customers a lot. And we have to, right? They tell us the type of office they're looking. They tell us the type of setups that they want. And, and the, the crypto word came out a lot where employees say, you know, we would like to pay in crypto. We have accumulated a significant amount of wealth in, in crypto that we would like to use it to pay for rent. As rent becomes, an important part of many companies. So we decided to basically accept crypto. And at the same time, you know, as people pay us in crypto, it, to us is just another currency. It's like we're holding to, we have US dollars, we've got euros, we got pounds, we got crypto, we've got Japanese yens, we got it. So to us, it makes no difference. And when our customers ask for reimbursement in crypto, we pay in crypto and we have, you know, we've had some of our customers who are paying us in cryptocurrencies and we have some landlords who said, look, I would like you to pay me in cryptocurrencies. So. You know, uh, the way we work looks at it is, you know, we are, we're going to listen to what our customers want from us. And if they demanded that they wanted to pay in crypto, that's why we took crypto as a form of payment.
6: Do you have a level that you'd be comfortable going to in terms of your sort of total uh, money going in and out in the form of crypto?
5: I mean, today is a very small part of our business. I think it's the beginning. I think crypto is a mega trend. I think crypto cannot be ignored. And uh, you know it's going to grow according to whatever our customers want. If our customers want to pay in crypto more, you know we're going to accept crypto. If our customers want to pay on traditional currency, we're going to accept form of payment as as traditional currency. So to us, this was nothing more than a move to basically help our customers satisfy some of their needs that our customers were asking from. Or obviously, our first customer and a large one was Coinbase. Not a lot of people know, but you know the headquarters of most of the real estate that Coinbase uses we work and, and being them the largest exchange of cryptocurrency they you know they, they they had they were the first customer to pay us in cryptocurrency
6: they pay you purely in cryptocurrency I think
5: it's a combination combination I mean I don't know exactly but but they were the first customer that actually wanted to pay in crypto
6: master has proved himself to be a highly successful investor through good times through bad times obviously through this recent pandemic uh, in terms of key man risk, who is the right person to take over should he step down? There's obviously yourself and Rajiv Misra, sort of both fairly close to the top of the organization.
5: You know, I mean, that's that's a subject that only Massa knows the answer. I mean, Massa is incredibly active. Uh, Massa is a hands-on manager. Masa meets with every single one of the entrepreneurs that we invest. And we hold, you know, daily meetings with Masa, in which, you know, we're always trying to figure out how we can make our entrepreneurs work together, how they can leverage the the ecosystem. And we're, we're close to, I would say, 240 of the biggest disruptors sit within the SOPAC ecosystem. So it's fascinating to see our entrepreneurs or founders engage with each other, help each other. And Masa is incredibly active in that. So. That answer only Masa knows and, and he hasn't shared it with anybody.
6: And when I think of the the sort of the different characters inside, you know, Mr. Mystery is is, is often cast as the uh, the sort of soft, uh, cuddly side of it. You know, the the, the friendly face of uh, of, of SoftBank Investing. You're more the operations guy. Obviously, you fixed the T-Mobile situation, you're now fixing the WeWork situation. Is that a fair characterization of the the two of you and the roles that you fill within the organization?
5: I mean, I think there's so much to do in in SoftBank that we all divide and conquer, right? Anytime there's a big issue with the company, you know, I'm I'm usually the one that gets sent sender. I had a personal attachment to Latin America, so that's why we launched a $5 billion Latin American fund.
2: That was SoftBank Group COO and WeWork Executive Chairman Marcelo Clare with Bloomberg Deals Reporter Ed Hammond.
5: Talking about succession
1: plans, listen, we always want to know when there's an iconic company, an iconic individual behind that company, you know, who comes next.
2: Yeah, and SoftBank is, of course, among the biggest.
1: Yeah, totally. And the WeWork story, this is one we've been following for the last year or so, a couple of years, so excited about the buildup, its growth, the expected IPO that ultimately didn't happen and then all of it kind of seemed to come crumbling down a bunch and they really retrenched, although they sound like now they're building back up.
2: Yeah, even though it's a tough market for commercial real estate, given exactly. the way that people are going to be going back to work in a hybrid hybrid method.
1: Yeah, exactly. Plenty more ahead on Bloomberg Business Week and our special how-to issue and the Bloomberg Business Week live virtual event, we're gonna hear from Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostek and the original Tesla Bull, ARC Invest Founder and CEO,
2: Kathy Wood. And later, the business of sports with the CEO of the NBA playoff-bound Dallas Mavericks, Cynthia Marshall. This is Bloomberg.
0: Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991. to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week.
1: Finance and economics—it's another important vertical of the magazine. Something we also covered at the live virtual event, the Bloomberg Business Week, and two voices covered it for us, both well known to our audience. Ark Invest, Kathy Wood—we'll hear from her shortly.
2: Another individual very familiar to our listeners is Raphael Bostick He's president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. Our Bloomberg TV and radio international economics and policy correspondent, Mike McKee, caught up with him as part of our Business Week Live Summit.
7: I'm expecting a fair amount of volatility through the summertime. And I think businesses are going to be uh, really evaluating their experiences as we see the the stimulus payments uh, spent down, as we see families uh, uh, really go through that pent up demand period. Everyone is really looking to get out and be engaged in the economy and all that kind of stuff. Um, Once we get that settled down, once the kids are back to school, once we start to see how families are allocating their their labor and workforce, um, then I think we will start to get signals from business leaders about um, how they're thinking about their strategies. So I'm going to continue to ask as we go through the summer. I'm expecting they're going to say, well, you know, there's a lot going on here. Um, hold on, but you know, starting in September and moving in through the fall into the wintertime, I think I'll start to get some signals that will allow me to answer that question.
8: Uh, I'm looking forward to coming to the next Atlanta Fed Financial Markets Conference, but I'm not sure if you're going to have Larry Summers come back. He told your conference that the Fed's new framework policy is a mistake, it's too mechanical, and you need to focus on overheating as the main risk to the economy. Can you tell me uh, where and why you might think he's wrong?
7: So, you know, I actually think that what we said in our statement is that we're going to let experience be our guide, and we're not going to be preemptive or proactive to stop things that may or may not happen. And what we've seen over the last ten years is that um, you know that expectation that inflation was just going to emerge didn't happen. And so policy could have a sort of an inappropriate or unintended impact on uh, the the trajectory of the economy. I don't think that the framework says that we're not worried about overheating. I think for me, when I see the framework and I looked at the words, what it told me was that um, we're going to look for evidence of overheating before we move uh, definitively. Uh, and so in that regard, I, I don't think that that Larry is saying something that different than us. I think you know he has his own style of communicating, which is very Larry Summers, and you know, I'm not even going to try to replicate that. Uh, but but I think people just should understand that. For me, I, I actually do worry about uh, both sides of e- of economic performance uh, to make sure that um, we our policy is deployed in a way that allows us to have a stable, predictable, and uh, and you know, prosper prosperous trajectory for growth.
8: Well, Alan Blinder, who uh, you know served at the Fed, uh, said today he's not entirely unsympathetic to Professor Summers uh, because he says there is a hell of a lot of aggregate aggregate demand out there chasing less aggregate supply. Do you feel you have a good handle on both sides of that, enough to know whether overheating is taking place in time to do something about it?
7: So I actually do. You know, one, one of the things that's been very interesting about this uh, this, this pandemic, uh, and it's actually was evident re- very early on, is that demand has responded much faster to the marketplace than supply has. It has taken supply time to sort of catch up and we're seeing this in, in a number of different ways, whether it be you know, semiconductors, or uh, lumber response for housing, you know, or even appliances and their availability for, for families that are looking to upgrade at their homes. Um, the question is not whether there's that imbalance that happens initially, it's whether that persists over time. And as I've talked to business leaders, what they've said is that for many of these things, they're not expecting them to, to really last for an extended period, uh, so that the dynamic that we're seeing now is not that new steady-state dynamic. Uh, and so, um, so there's a reason to be uh, less concerned. But I do want to emphasize again, you know, this is why we talk to people on a repeated basis. I, I want to know whether their views on this are changing, because if they are changing, then that will lead me to have to uh, rethink sort of my approach to where our policy should be.
8: You put in place one hundred and twenty billion dollars a month of quantitative easing bond buying a year ago as an emergency action. Uh, Do we still need that much money? Markets are functioning. Bank lending is actually lower than it was, so it doesn't seem to be uh, uh, adding anything to stimulus at this point. Uh, Could we do with less than that and still have the economy on the same track it is today?
7: So I think that's a fair question and it's something that I'm talking about with my team internally. Uh, Right now, I would say I've not come to a, a clearer view on this. I do think that as we continue to move forward, Uh, We continue to see progress in the labor market. We see inflation at or above our target. Um, This is a question that we're really going to have to uh, sort of ground, ground ourselves in. That was
1: Dr. Rafael Bostic of the Atlanta Fed, a voice we listen to very closely. It'll be interesting to watch how the central bank strategy develops in the coming months.
2: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Up next, someone who also keeps an eye on what's going on in the world through the lens of innovation and disruption. Her world rocked a bit on volatility and pullback in technology stocks of late, especially in some names that she's heavily invested in.
1: We hear from Arc Investments' Kathy Wood. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Think about Kathy Wood, and you could, Tim, probably find her in just about any vertical covered by Bloomberg Business Week magazine. Technology and innovation, yes, of course. Companies and industries, finance and economy, power and policy, certainly from a regulatory perspective, and how it impacts some of her investment ideas. Well,
2: she's someone who has been among the Bloomberg 50, known for her big bets on Tesla, the Internet, software, and biotech. But it's been a challenging few months for Kathy Wood. We've seen assets fall from a peak of $60 billion dollars. To around forty billion dollars. She joined us on a day when Bitcoin was coming undone, and so were other cryptocurrencies. Yeah, look in hindsight, Carol, there's no better day in the last year to have Kathy Wood join us. Talk about timing. Check it out.
9: I think we're in a risk-off period, and uh, for for all assets, if you if you look at the the stock market, the the more risky or volatile parts of the market have come in dramatically since mid. February. And I think a lot of the concerns have been around inflation. Initially, that was helping Bitcoin uh, because obviously Bitcoin is a very important inflation hedge. You know, it's a a rules-based monetary policy, the first global rules-based monetary policy we have ever had. Hugely important reserve currency of the crypto asset ecosystem. Uh, But I think uh, what's happening right now is because the stock market, the highly volatile part of the stock market, the innovation oriented part of the stock market has gone through such a correction, which has been flamed by inflation fears. Uh, I think I think the correlations uh, among volatile assets are going to one right now, and that's including Bitcoin.
1: Well, I want to unpack a couple of things. So Bitcoin, I mean, you at one point, I think back in April, told Dow Jones that it could go to about five hundred thousand dollars. Do you still hold that target? Do you still think that's where we're headed?
9: I, I, we do. I do. Yasin Elmandra is our uh, crypto analyst, and and uh, we we go through soul searching times like this, and and scrape the models. And yes, our conviction is as high. The one thing that has changed here, however, is the environmental concerns around uh, Bitcoin, in particular, have mm-hmm. uh, caused. Uh, people like Elon Musk to pull away and say, whoa, 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 let, let me let me make sure I understand this. And uh, we believe that even this is going to change because, first of all, right now, uh, the percentage of Bitcoin mined with renewables and hydroelectric power is quite substantial. I think in uh, China, it's over 50% in renewables. Uh, and we also believe, uh, uh, and we wrote a paper uh, in conjunction with Square on this, and we're going to have a conference about it in July, we believe that Bitcoin mining integrated into the distributed grid. And by that, I mean solar roofs, power walls in homes, uh Utilities, merchant power producers uh, starting to include Bitcoin mining in the ecosystem, why would they do that? They would do it because renewables are intermittent power sources, right? Weather is it sunny or not? Wind is it windy or not? And Bitcoin mining could take off if it's if there's excess energy uh, uh, from solar being loaded into power walls, it can be offloaded into Bitcoin mining, and the whole ecosystem therefore becomes much more economic. If this happens, we believe that the the uh, adoption of solar is going to accelerate dramatically because there's another profit center associated with it, Bitcoin mining. Well,
1: what happens, though, in the meantime? Do you think we go much lower from here? Uh,
9: you never know how low is low when a market gets very emotional. Uh, a lot of traders see Bitcoin uh, dropping below the 200-day moving average, uh, which right. is which was at 40,000. Uh, so traders, once that happened, they just dump. Some just uh, dump and run. Uh, I think we're in a capitulation phase. Uh, Yassine has... Uh, a dashboard. We were looking at all the indicators this morning. They are all suggesting that we are in the capitulation phase, which is a really great time to buy, Uh, no matter what the asset is. A capitulation phase is buy. It's on sale. Now, am I saying 35000 is the low? You know, if traders, uh, and there are a lot of speculators in, in Bitcoin, if they are Uh, running for the hills just because uh, Bitcoin has broken through a moving average that is important to them, it could continue. But uh, all of our indicators are saying this is capitulation right now. Do you have a low point on your model for Bitcoin? No, these metrics uh, are are more a a measure. uh, Are we in a truly capitulation phase? And it's very detailed. Yassine uses on-chain analysis, which this is the only asset where you can see exactly who's doing what, when, why and how. Uh, And all of those metrics are saying this is a capitulation. This is as, as bad as it got during the coronavirus crisis. So what about
1: systemic concerns? And I'm not talking about bringing down the financial system, but you know more and more of kind of the establishment are getting involved in Bitcoin. A lot more companies have Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Should we be concerned about their exposure? Tesla, for one, but others. Yes.
9: Yes. Well, they're usually, in the case of Square and Tesla, they're between 5 and 8% of their cash is in uh, Bitcoin. Uh, so- I don't. Th- so that's no cause for concern. I mean, think about it. We were worried that uh, Tesla would run out of cash. Of course, Ark was not worried, but the world was worried two years ago that it would run out of cash. It has so much cash now that it has the luxury to put five to eight percent in in Bitcoin. So. Uh, uh, MicroStrategy is another company. It has almost all its cash in Bitcoin. That's that's mm-hmm. perhaps something different, you know. Uh, but as I said, if we are in the capitulation uh, phase, we shouldn't be worried about MicroStrategy either. Uh, I, we do believe this is a new asset class and that institutions, they are looking at it right now because the correlations of relative returns and total returns to compared to other asset classes, tends to be very low over time. Uh, And so they have to look at it. Now, ESG might prevent a a move in wholesale, uh, but we do believe that once they understand how renewables are becoming incorporated into the Bitcoin mining ecosystem, uh, and that Bitcoin mining might accelerate the adoption of solar. uh, And I think Elon will come back and be a part of that ecosystem as well. So why do you think he came
1: out and said, wait a minute, maybe I'm going to back off of Bitcoin? Um, What do you think his concern was? What was his nervousness?
9: Well, I think he moved in because uh, he's been thinking, watching like we all have basically unhinged monetary policies. They're not tied to anything anymore. Uh, Whereas Bitcoin is mathematically metered to top out at 21 million units. And we're approaching 19 million now. So the scarcity factor should increase and support the price. We do believe uh, that is what is going to be supporting the price in here. I believe what happened after he took the position in Bitcoin is he got uh, pushback from institutional shareholders like BlackRock. If you've got Larry Fink you know beating the drum on climate change as uh, one of the most important uh, topics uh, and problems of our time, uh, then uh, he was going to fa- have to face those sorts of concerns. I don't think he expected that. And uh, now that he's sorting it out, learning more about the environmental impact, I think he'll come back into the mix. We certainly hope he will. Uh, uh, I don't know if he's going to be part of the conference in in July or not. It would be he would be a very good addition because I think he would provide both sides of the equation. How quickly could the adoption of solar uh, accelerate if we introduce mining into that ecosystem?
1: Do you expect a Bitcoin ETF to get approved anytime soon? And I'm curious if you plan to launch a crypto ETF anytime soon.
9: You know, I think, we, well, now that uh, uh, Gary Gensler is uh, head of the SEC, uh, he's Bitcoin friendly. We know that he taught a class at uh, uh, courses, uh, courses at mm-hmm. MIT before coming back to the SEC. So, and I think the research um, uh, professionals uh, at the SEC, uh, they understand Bitcoin in particular and uh, and I, I think are much more comfortable with it now that we've had several years to digest what exactly it is, go through a bear market, go through a bull market, now go through a bit of a bear market. I think uh, watching uh, the uh, ecosystem evolve and actually become... Uh, even more anti fragile, you know we're getting some real tests here, and if the system doesn't break, and I don't think it will, I think that their comfort will increase in a couple uh, of ways. Number one, the infrastructure is there, is robust, number two, the liquidity is there. Uh, I, I don't think uh, I, I don't think that's going to be uh, disproven here and number three, the price is down from very lofty levels so hey why not start uh, an ETF after a correction in in the market uh, than before so I actually think the odds are going up now that we've had this correction uh, I don't know if it's going to be this year or not uh, We hear perhaps fourth quarter uh, but you know we heard, Uh, Third quarter before that. So as we get closer to the fourth quarter, we'll know how much is being pushed out.
1: That's Kathy Wood of ARK Invest. And that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg
2: Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenevec. Ahead in our next hour, part two of Carol's conversation with Kathy Wood as the original Tesla bull digs in on her commitment to the EV giant.
1: Plus the U.S. CEO Binance Brian Brooks, Dallas Mavericks CEO Cynthia Marshall and Nick Jonas. He's making tequila.
2: This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine, plus global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Hi, I'm Carol Masser.
2: And I'm Tim Stenovec.
1: Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Tim, it's a special week. It's the how-to issue of the magazine. But in coordination with that, we had a Bloomberg Live event. It was called the Bloomberg Business Week. Five days of live virtual programming. And so, we're highlighting some of those interviews.
2: Yeah, in a fantastic lineup, including the U.S. CEO of Binance. It's the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange, Brian Brooks.
1: Plus, how to steer a sports franchise through a pandemic with Maverick CEO Cynthia Marshall. And
2: how to start a tequila company with Nick Jonas and John Varvatos. Gotta say, that's a lot of fun.
1: First up this hour, though, more from Kathy Wood. The ARK Invest CEO and founder remains committed to her investment strategy. Despite struggles for companies such as Tesla, so far in 2021, she has been a big bull on that company. I asked her about the EV maker's recent struggles in China.
9: I think the Chinese Mar- uh, China is going to favor its local producers like Neo and others Xpeng uh And I think they're granting subsidies to Neo, which is the battery swap company, Mm -hmm. even on its very high end cars, which they are not granting to Tesla. So it's obvious and it has always been obvious that China would favor a local producer. But what we are seeing from uh, China uh, and particularly Tesla is exports into Europe. Uh, where it does not yet have a plant. Uh, and what we're hearing is uh, the, uh, especially in Germany, but well, all over Europe, where their, their standards are extremely high for cars in terms of design and performance, uh, that they would prefer cars from Shanghai, which is a much newer plant, and uh, much more productive, much more efficient in terms of uh, these design, perfecting these designs than is Fremont. Uh, And so I think we're seeing a big export market develop uh, from China into Europe. Uh, And uh, I think China will like that. China wants to be known not for shipping or exporting, you know, cheap goods, but also high end goods. So this could be the beginning of a trend. So is China at risk then for Tesla? I don't think they're going to shut down the factory at all. I think that that okay. factory will be used much more for exporting than we once imagined. I will say that uh, Tesla's cars in in China uh, have sold very well until very recently. I'm sure the publicity uh, uh, the pub- publicity it has received has cooled cooled uh, uh, Tesla's jets in China, but uh, it's. Uh, It's been uh, fortuitous that this export market has opened up at the same time.
1: Kathy, one thing I want to ask you, and we talked about it at the beginning, inflation, your mentor, you and I talked about this just a few weeks ago, Art Laffer, you were in your 20s, you know, you were focusing on the economy. It was a time where inflation was off the charts and everybody thought it would consistently stay that way. Laffer thought differently. And we know well known uh, in the supply side economics. Here we are at another time where the markets, the volatility is often guided by our inflation expectations. Is inflation going to be a problem in your view?
9: Well, uh, we, we've we been saying for some time, actually since the depths of the coronavirus, we were doing YouTube videos uh, saying regularly, V-shaped recovery, businesses are way behind consumers. Consumers are buying all of these goods. In fact, that's all they can do because they're stuck at home, right? So they were buying non-durable and durable goods that could be shipped to them, right? Uh, right. Non. Okay. That part of consumption is one third of consumption, and a disproportionate amount or percentage of the market basket of consumers was in goods for the past year. Businesses didn't expect it. They had been lagging in terms of capital spending, in terms of inventories. They were worried about inverted yield curves and China-U.S. trade conflict. There were many, many concerns. And so what I believe is we are setting up for a massive period of deflation. Uh, Now, let me explain that. Uh, There are three sources of deflation. One is when the orders, these double and triple orders, are canceled. Right now we have seen lumber correct 30 percent in the last week. I think this is the beginning of that. Copper is now starting to correct, and uh I, I believe that commodity prices went too far too fast as businesses were scrambling and panicking, right? They were losing business to competition if they hadn't planned their inventories correctly. So that's one source of deflation, but that's only cyclical deflation. And we actually didn't expect it to start now. We expected it to start later in the year. But I guess it makes sense. Now that vaccines are here and consumers are shifting away from goods towards services or at the margin, uh, the writing is on the wall.
2: When Kathy Wood talks, people (laughs) listen. I mean, this interview, Carol, I was watching it live, but I was also watching it play out on Twitter and it just absolutely blew up on social.
1: I got to say, it was just a lot of it was timing. I mean, this is Kathy Wood's world. The Bitcoin blow up this week. Tesla, there was news on that. These are the companies that she talks about and invests in and has for years. So, the timing just kind of worked out so well. Speaking
2: well. of timing, I mean, she reiterated her time horizon for the way that mm-hmm. she thinks about investing. Disruption, five years, and she's sticking to her guns. Exactly. Not really changing at all. Well, a great conversation
1: and so grateful to catch up with Kathy Wood. More in the magazine from her, including how to cultivate an innovative culture. Tim, she talks a lot about you know her environment. She's got a young investment team. They do the analysis. They check in with the team several times a week. There's morning meetings. There's a Friday meeting. Uh, and it's all about kind of looking at their investment theses, but this is how she does it.
2: A lot of people probably became familiar with Kathy Wood in 2020 just because of how well her fund did and right. ARK Invest did. But she's been at this a long time, Carol.
1: Yeah, exactly. And listen, has kind of an economic background started there, but has moved into a lot more analysis and obviously investments.
2: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, another person who's keenly aware of the goings-on in the world of crypto, Binance U.S. CEO Brian Brooks joining us. That company's been in the news as of late. Oh, it has. (laughs) Yes, it has. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
1: So we heard from Kathy Wood on Bitcoin a bit earlier and a lot more. She's sticking with her firm's projections of the crypto asset ultimately reaching the $500,000 mark.
2: Wow. But in a week where crypto volatility came to a head, we wanted to hear from one of the top dogs at the world's largest crypto exchange, Binance, which has also been plagued with customer support issues of late.
1: Yeah, there's some great reporting on the Bloomberg Terminal. Check it out on the terminal or at Bloomberg.com. Keep in mind, though, the company's U.S. CEO, Brian Brooks, he caught up with our team. In fact, he spoke to Bloomberg. Bloomberg's Romain Bostic at the Bloomberg Business Week conference.
10: The decentralized nature of this is obviously a big part of the appeal here, but the stability—at least when you look at other markets—the stability is often centralized in a way, that, or at least what brings stability is that centralization. I mean, we once had a decentralized economy here until somebody decided that you know we needed to create a Fed and uh, and have some sort of stability built into the Fed's mandate here. If you Get to a stage here where you want a system of rules, a system of speed limits, if you will, isn't that in and of itself almost a centralization? How do you do that without without recentralizing things?
11: Yeah, I, I guess, look, you know, there there are a couple of problems with, with that uh, analysis. I mean, the first is we didn't create the Fed, you know, in the 19-teens because decentralization was bad. We created the Fed because we didn't have a technological ability to allow people to transact directly with each other, and so somebody needed to issue the dollars that could be accepted everywhere. But we now have technology that does that. It's sort of like, you know, uh, the reason that the post office was the way we transacted information in the olden days was because there was no way for somebody in New York to talk to somebody in in uh, san francisco and then we had email and we didn't need the post office the same way that we used to right so technologies sometimes supplant the assumptions on which institutions were built so where you say stability remain i would say brittleness um yes it was stable it was also super super controlled right it was also incredibly expensive and didn't work all that well it was merely the best thing we have now we have something better If we get to
10: a stage where we see more rules who should have the oversight
11: well um my personal view is it depends on the utility that we're talking about so remember every cryptocurrency represents a different function right these are all different networks being built for different things so you know if you're talking about bitcoin which fundamentally is an investment asset it's kind of digital gold we like to say it ought to be regulated if it's regulated like investment assets are regulated it's not a security of course but it's something that people buy and hold for its value retention properties versus Ethereum is a network for the remission of payments, uh, right? Or for crowdsourcing of funding. And so if it's like a payment mechanism, you'd expect the banking regulators to, to talk about that, which is what I did at the OCC. So it all depends on what the underlying activity is. Like activities should be regulated alike they shouldn't be regulated by asset class category. If this is a payment mechanism, it ought to be regulated like a payment mechanism, et cetera. And I think that's the mind shift that regulators need to achieve here.
10: You spent a brief time uh, as a regulator here. Do you think that regulators and more importantly, some of the legislators uh, in Washington understand those distinctions?
11: Well, I, I think that they do more than they used to. So you know, I entered crypto about four years ago uh, in, in sort of a big way And at the time, the knowledge base on crypto on Capitol Hill was very, very shallow. There were maybe two or three members of Congress who really had started to explore it. But at this point, you know, we've had multiple United States senators and multiple members of the House of Representatives who really get it. And I'm talking about people on both sides of the aisle. That's the interesting thing about crypto is it's a weirdly nonpartisan issue. People who go down the rabbit hole and get the network effect of crypto really are long this and, and that includes people on both sides. So I think we have a lot more of that. I think at the senior regulatory level, there are people who've just never used it. it it's possible it's because they're at an age where, you know, we're comfortable enough with the status quo that exploring new tech is not a thing, but, uh, but we need to, we really do, because if we lose this race to other countries, you know, if we lose control over the next internet, that's gonna be bad for generations to come.
10: Well, part of what's gonna drive the debate that certainly in Washington is gonna be, I guess, how people sort of view the case for crypto. Is it just a speculative asset? Is it a store of value similar to gold? Or is there a use case for it as a transactional means here? What's the argument that you make?
11: Yeah, well, look, first of all, let me just say that the token focused approach to this conversation, I always say is the wrong approach. So forget about the crypto tokens for a minute. Think about the networks that are the reason the crypto tokens exist. that That's all tokens are about, okay, is to induce people to participate in networks. So forget about whether, you know, Tezos or Filecoin are going to be more valuable tomorrow or less valuable tomorrow. The question is, do you have a thesis for the underlying thing that they're powering? So think about it this way. You don't buy Apple stock because you think that the stock is going up or down. You buy Apple stock because you think that iPhones are going to win in the market. And if they win in the market, then by definition, your stock is going to go up in value. Same thing here. If you think Ethereum is the best platform to build financial services apps, then ETH tokens are going to go up in value stop thinking about the, the sort of the technical analysis of the shape of the price movements and start focusing on the network that's being built. The networks that win will have very valuable tokens and it's more like that than it is about the tokens themselves. So that's why at the OCC we really focused on the idea that some of these networks are payment networks. They're being used by companies to transact value from person A to person B. So they should be regulated like Swift and the automated clearinghouse, right? It's very easy to understand that. Yeah versus other things like Filecoin, it's a decentralized storage device it should be regulated like the cloud once you think about it like that it's a very different discussion
10: to your point though about the idea that it won't be banned i mean that's a fantastic point there is concern here that china may not ban it but it may compete with it the u.s may not ban it but it may tax it into oblivion was there a concern there
11: yeah i mean look i i think there's always a concern but again that's not just about crypto so when you think about taxing things into oblivion you know, we have an administration right now that's talking about imposing a capital gains tax higher than the income tax. That will kill the stock market. And, and yet again, nobody's asking if equities are going to go the way of the, the dodo, right? We have high tax periods of time in the country and low tax periods. Asset classes survive. Americans are highly ingenious at, uh, at, at finding ways of creating value. And that will happen with crypto, too.
2: That's Binance U.S. CEO Brian Brooks, and he mentioned his work in government earlier in his career. He was actually an executive at the Office of Comptroller of the Currency. It's an independent bureau within the Treasury Department that's involved in banking oversight. So it's certainly interesting to hear his views on regulation in his current role, and it comes at a time where – We learned earlier this week, Carol, that uh, the Fed is going to have uh, research come out on cryptocurrency later this year. And also that the Treasury wants to start uh, understanding more about Bitcoin transactions uh, that are $10,000 or more.
1: What's interesting, his whole background is banking, right? But at this point, I think people are still trying to figure out what are cryptocurrencies? Are they currencies? Are they commodities? Are they collectibles? Like, I've heard all of those words to describe it.
2: Well, still to come on Bloomberg Business Week, basketball getting back to normal, sort of. <laughs> Maverick CEO Cynthia Marshall on her team's growing online presence and the business model for limited seating capacity as the NBA postseason tips off.
1: She has such great energy, plus cocktails with Nick Jonas and John Vervedo. So, yeah, that's how we roll here at Bloomberg Business Week. Too bad you can't drink any right now. <laughs> Not now, maybe later. This is Bloomberg.
0: Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991. to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week.
1: The NBA playoffs, they are back, officially tipping off this weekend and safe to say it's been an unusual season for the league after last year's playoffs were held without fans down in the Disney bubble in Orlando. to this year all 30 teams got back to playing in their home arenas, but all of those facilities had limited fan capacity throughout.
2: The Dallas Mavericks are back in the postseason for a second straight year. They're in a unique market with Texas among the states leading the push to ease COVID-related restrictions but it's not necessarily in line with league safety protocols. So how does the team take care of its highest paying customers while still adhering to those ever-changing health guidelines? That's what QuickTake Chief Correspondent Jason Kelly asked CEO Cynthia Marshall.
12: We've had to really step back, first of all, and just figure out, uh, and, and it was something that I, I hadn't thought about at first, is when we decided that we would uh, increase the number of fans and have about 4,500 in the arena, is you have to prioritize all your season ticket members for one thing. We call them club maverick members and figure out who actually gets these seats. How many do they get? And then, you know, how are you going to configure it? And we have where you can have two, four or six so the different pods. And then just the math around how do you try to maximize uh, how many people you can actually get in the arena while also being very fair uh, to your season ticket holders. Uh, And so I've had season ticket holders call and say, I really wanted four seats. I was only offered two, but I don't see anybody sitting next to me, all that kind of stuff. And so we work with all that. And then just the seating uh, configuration. You know, we have to get approval from the league uh, to to make sure that we're following all the health and safety protocols, how many you can have in front of people and all that. Uh, So so that's been uh, quite interesting. And then, of course, something like a high five line. It's virtual now. You can't have fans standing there, you know, giving the players high fives, but they like that. They want that energy. So we've set it up with the big screens and all that. And so we have a virtual high five line. Uh, And what's great about that is you can have the players' families Uh, their babies up on the screen and all that. So that's been great. Um, And just trying to figure it out, uh, the distance that people can, you know, we have to have away from the players. Uh, So who can be on the lower level, who can't be on there? In fact, I don't even have red level access. I opted not to do that. I I said, no, we got to be uh, safe and healthy. So it's just all of that that we just have to work through. And then, of course, there are the financial implications. Uh, So we've tried to really step it up with online merchandising. Uh, So that that has been, Jason, I'm telling you, that has been amazing what has happened with online merchandising. People are buying our stuff online. I mean, so we still have the city kind of blanketed with Mavs gear, uh, but they're buying most of it online.
3: And so how do you make those adjustments? I, I mean, is that more sort of back end? Is that marketing? Like, how do you sort of make those adjustments in real time to make sure that you're kind of getting to the customer, the fan, as it were? where they are
12: well we're, you know we're, we we have our a, a digital present, a presence, so we kind of really stepped it up around the digital standpoint and we are actually watching who's watching us and so we're trying to to serve those audiences so we've increased our youth audience uh which i think is is amazing uh so we're trying to do things to serve them we're trying to uh tailor we we're not trying we are tailoring some merchandise uh towards them uh, so we have a whole digital, uh, team. We have a content team. Uh, we have a marketing team that's amazing. And we, and, and of course, you know, Aaron Feingold White, our, you know, communications and events team. So they're watching all of that. And of course, I'm watching it too, of course. And so we're trying to respond we, to your point. We're trying to meet people, uh, where they are. And I think, I think we're doing a good job with it. I think we're doing a really good job with it. I mean, our players are really, really, uh, popular. And so yeah. they, they've had a good season. And so, you know, one of the things we did when we went into this whole COVID space, we said we got to figure out a way to keep our players out there, uh, to keep our uh, fans uh, in a place where they can engage with our players, but they can't really, like, touch them right now. They can't see them, so how are we going to do that? Uh, so we just put together a plan really almost for, for every player uh, in the team and just said – Let's figure out ways and fun ways to kind of get them out there using a lot of, you know, animation and things that we hadn't done in the past. So we've gotten real creative.
2: That's our Bloomberg Quick Take chief correspondent, Jason Kelly, with Dallas Mavericks CEO, Cynthia Marshall. And we should mention that Mavs owner Mark Cuban has said that the team has approval from the NBA for at least 9,000 fans for playoff games. So that's a little bit less than 50 percent capacity at American Airlines Center.
1: And uh, Cynthia Marshall said, they've gotten really creative, like we all have, right, in this we environment.
2: <laughs> We're experimenting. We're figuring it out. Exactly. You're
1: listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. Coming up, we wrap up with how to start your own tequila company. Ooh, that's a good lesson. Who's it with, Carol? Singer-songwriter Nick Jonas. Oh. I know. And acclaimed designer John Varvatos They're getting their creative juices flowing in the spirits game. Listen, someone had to take one for the team here, yeah,
2: Tim. And I, I appreciate I'm, it. You know, <laughs> I'm really glad do. that you were the one who did that.
12: All right, this is Bloomberg.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes, Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg
2: Radio. And just like Bloomberg Business Week Magazine wraps up every week with pursuits, so did our live event, the Bloomberg Business Week,
1: as well. Tim, we caught up with a dynamic duo. They're collaborators who have worked together on clothes, a fragrance, now putting their heads and glasses together, figuring out how to make a tequila. And i got to say, a great cocktail with us as well. I got to sample how to do it.
2: Yeah, I'm pretty jealous. Here's fashion designer John Varvatos and singer-songwriter
13: Nick Jonas.
1: I started the conversation by talking about the pandemic and John Varvatos' personal battle with the virus.
13: Yes, I had COVID uh, actually before everything shut down last March. And I went up to my lake house a couple hours north of the city when I had it, thinking I'd be back in the next 10 days or so. And uh, I was there for, I guess, about six months, five or six months. But I came back in September, and I've been back in the city since September. And uh, But when I look back on it, I think that you know, if you can find any silver lining in it, it was the quality of life that... Um, I had with my family during that period. I really had the most meals that I've had together, you know, the most uh, together time without all the craziness um, in our lives. And it was a special moment. It also made you reflect a little bit on what's really important in life Mm -hmm. as well.
1: Yeah, I feel the same. How about for you, Nick? What was the past 12, 13 months like?
14: It's been quite strange, uh, to say the (laughs) least. But, um, you know, I'm grateful that uh, family and loved ones have all been uh, okay, and and uh, you know the the silver lining for my wife and I is that we've we've had time together that we may not have had uh, had life not shut down the way it did. But uh, there's there's an enormous crisis going on in India right now, uh, and That's so crazy. you know we're, we're sending our our thoughts and prayers, and and she's making a lot of uh, great efforts and doing a lot of good there to uh, get the people the, the help they need, and and obviously having. Now grown to to loving you as much as I have, my my heart is is breaking for what's going on there. But um, yeah, you know it's been it's been wild.
1: Yeah, to say the least. And you're right, we are far from being over the crisis as a world. Having said that, I was thinking about, John, what you said about I was in my own little family bubble. We had a lot of family dinners. There was a lot of wine. There was a lot of alcohol also kind of happening. So let's talk about why we've got you guys here. We want to talk about this new tequila that you have. First of all, you've collaborated, the two of you, on things together. Was this just a natural progression? Talk to us about the relationship that the two of you have had. John, you want to start?
13: Sure. Yeah, Nick and I met um, probably six years ago at a dinner in New York and uh, supposed to bring collaborators and creatives together and CEOs and that type of thing. But we ended up hanging out together the whole time talking about, you know, creative uh, music, fashion, our families growing up in, you know, in, in the worlds that we grew up in. And And the next day, Nick called me and uh, asked if I wanted to come to the studio to listen to some music that he was working on. And the night before, we had been sipping tequila throughout our conversation. And when I got to the studio, he kindly had another bottle of tequila sitting there. (laughs) And, you know, that day, we really knew that we were going to be fast friends and that there was going to be something together that we were going to do. And the first thing we started to work on was a... um, capsule collection that I did under my brand Um, and that was a lot of fun working with Nick and you know really getting his point of view on things and then uh, we launched the fragrance that was kind of a crazy success and we did a couple more and while we were working on that we were also working on the Jonas Brothers documentary and uh, but all of it kind of spent with a bit of tequila and enjoying those moments and reflecting on positive things in our lives and that type of thing. Um, so that's really, you know, the the, the kind of uh, where we started.
14: Nick, you want to take it from there? After we kind of had established that we we had this great creative flow together, we, we found ourselves in, in these great places, having these great life experiences. And uh, there would usually be a glass of tequila in uh, our hands. And uh, it was something we both shared a passion for and wanted to learn more about and kind of threw it out you know what if we started our own brand and what if we um you know made something that we could bring the same level of care and focus and attention to detail that we bring to these other projects we've done together and the things that we do separately to a tequila brand and and so we built kind of a vision for it without having the liquid uh the bottle anything like that but just a a big dream and idea and brought it into our partners at Stoli Group and presented them with this this plan and and this uh this tequila brand and they loved the idea. And a couple weeks after we were on our way down to uh, Mexico, we first stopped in Cabo, had a great night of, of great food, music, uh, tequila. And um, we're trying to think of a name for the brand. We couldn't think of anything, but we we knew that we wanted it to embody uh, the feeling that we had that night, which was great experiences with great people. And uh, I I did a toast and said, you know, to life as it should be, which then became kind of our, our motto for the brand. And uh, the following day we, Woke up a little bleary-eyed, probably, and looked at the placard on the door of the villa we were staying in, and it said Villa One. Uh, And so we'd we'd solved our problem with not being able to come up with a name. I just loved the way that sounded and and the experience we had there. And the next step was working on the juice. So we went down to Jalisco, Mexico, met with Arturo Fuentes, who is our master distiller. Uh, He's kind of a legend in that region. He is the the godfather of tequila. He's worked on some incredible tequila brands and uh, has a background in cognac and champagne. And so it was a really natural fit for us with him. Um, And we, we got into the process of tasting tequilas and trying to decide kind of what we wanted it to to taste like and, and what the three expressions, the silver reposado and Yejo, what that, what they said as a, as a collection of tequilas. And uh, it was about an 18 month process. And um, we finally got the juice there. And then John kind of took the lead and spearheaded the bottle design, which we're very proud of. This is our silver. Um, we got the reposado and Yejo there as well. Um, But you know, john you should probably take it from here on the design front but i'll just say we're very passionate about this and and couldn't be more excited to be talking about it today you know so when we were talking about the bottle
13: we wanted to do something really quite beautiful and special but also that felt kind of authentic and wasn't just some crazy shape um, that looked of the moment we thought like what could there be that 10 years down the road 20 years down the road it still felt new and fresh and and so we worked on the shape together, Nick and I. We looked at a lot of glass, and we thought about that, and how it felt in the hand of a bartender when they were pouring. Um, so started with the shape and then worked on the details. I was working on some jewelry at that time, and was working on a bracelet and came up with this idea to add a detail that I saw from nobody else out there uh, at the top of it with a really heavy metal cap, also being right. able to, like – engraved the, lo- the logo in the glass, and we did a lot of research on the logo um, because the hallmark was a really important part of, of our voice there. But again, the most important part of this is the juice inside. It's the magic in the bottle that it is all about, though.
1: How much sampling was going on and what were you guys looking? Because you really, you worked with somebody who understood champagne, who really understood, you know, a great tasting alcohol. So I'm curious what you guys were both looking for. Because there's lots of tequilas out there. And so how you distinguished yourself.
14: There's lots of high quality tequilas out there now, too, which is, uh, you know, something that we see as an opportunity. You know, we um, mm-hmm. we were thrilled to get to look at our competition and say, how can we just kind of raise the bar, as John said. And um, I think that the first thing for us was about finding something unique in the distilling process. And so what Arturo did was he he combined the lowland uh, agave with the highland agave, which gives it this very unique uh, combination of the earthier notes from the lowland and the sweeter notes from the highland uh, agaves, and uh, we we only know of one other brand that does this. So it, it's a it's a, gives it a really unique fresh and smooth finish, uh, along with you know some more complex notes when you get into the reposado and the añejo, obviously aged and American oak barrels mm-hmm. um, for for six to twelve months and then twelve months to eighteen months depending. Uh, but the silver is uh, not aged; it's it's you know straight from the the barrel basically, and uh, and it's. uh my favorite for mixing cocktails, which is something that I've gotten quite into uh, during this quarantine time, uh, getting creative with, with more time on my hands than I, I would have liked to have had. But uh, it lends itself to, to some good cocktails.
1: You know, we're doing this how-to issue for Business Week, Bloomberg Business Week. You know, how do you guys do a business? You're obviously friends. You get along. You've done other collaborations. How do you do a business together, stay friends? How do, how do you do it?
14: It's easy when when you like the people you're working with, um, and there are obviously ups and downs and things that you got to navigate in in any business, and and s- certainly the spirits business is is no exception. Uh, but mm-hmm. we've got a lot of great partners and um, a lot of people that we we build great relationships with at this point. And having it start with John and I, I think uh, from the top down, just saying that uh, you know we genuinely enjoy this adventure that we're on together, and we enjoy the time we spend together, and the fact that we get to work on this brand, bring it to life in this way and work with so many great people, uh, makes, makes the whole experience that much better, but it doesn't, again, it doesn't mean that there aren't those moments that are really challenging. And with that, I think you just have to lean on the, the people that you trust most to kind of help navigate those, those moments.
13: Yeah. We look to support each other. I mean, we all, we, we both have a lot of things going on. This is a huge priority in our lives, but we look to support each other. And, and as much as we bring, you know, the passion and, you know, the care and and the um, attention to detail to it. We also bring different things to the table, which, like any great partnership, it's kind of the whole. um, And the two is better than one type of mentality.
1: That's fashion designer John Varvatos and singer-songwriter Nick Jonas.
2: So, Carol, I got a request. Next (laughs) time you get invited to just, like, learn how to make cocktails okay, or to learn how to start a tequila company, Um, can you give me an invite, please?
1: I don't know. Have your person call my person. We'll see what we can work out. (laughs) All
2: right. Sounds good.
1: All right, that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Find all the interviews from the five-day virtual event, Bloomberg Live event, called the Bloomberg Business Week. You can find it at BloombergLive.com. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone. I'm Carol Master.
2: And I'm Tim Stenovek. Be sure to tune into our Bloomberg Business Week Daily Show Monday through Friday. starts at two PM Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio.
1: You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News.
2: Also, check out our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. You can find it at Bloomberg.com, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bloomberg
1: Business Week and the special how-to issue. It's available on newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal.
2: You can also see me on Bloomberg Quick Take, available at Bloomberg.com QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. Have a great weekend, everyone. This is Bloomberg.